the topic of global biography, question mark, uh, the Oxford Dictionary of National Biography, Big Data and Transnational Networks. We're very fortunate to have two speakers, uh, Dr. Philip Carter and Professor Sir David Canadine, but Philip actually isn't here in person, and instead his paper is going to be read by Dr. Karen Fox. But I will begin by reading Philip's bio. Dr. Philip Carter is Senior Research and Publication Editor for the Oxford Dictionary of National Biography. He's responsible for planning updates, for commissioning, researching, editing, and writing dictionary articles. He oversees the revision of existing entries in line with new research, and also runs the ODNB's program of public engagement. This includes partnerships with national museums and galleries, libraries, schools, and history societies, as well as talks, articles, a biography podcast, and social media outlets. Based at the University Press, he works with OUP staff on the Dictionary's marketing, press profile, and the ODNB's online development as a scholarly resource. Prior to the ODNB, Philip Carter's research was in 18th century British social history, and he has since written on 18th century ideas of biography, and <coughs> excuse me, on national, national biographies. More widely, he's interested in the relationship between national biography and digital humanities, the potential for connections between national biographies online, and the ways in which academics use the ODNB as a data set to study historical migration, mobility, and social mapping. Now, his paper is going to be presented by Dr. Karen Fox, who's a research fellow at the Australian Dictionary of Biography uh, in the National Centre of Biography, where she's worked since 2011. And I had the pleasure and fortune of working with Karen and with many of the team during a number of years when I was um, involved as a staff member of this dictionary. And I just wanted to add, before I hand over to Karen, my, my personal um, you know, sense of excitement at this conference and at this wonderful uh, anniversary of this important national project. Uh, and I am like many people who have come in contact with the ADB and have been continued to be drawn back to it and, and sort of never forget my time here. And the authors, I guess, are the best examples of, of this, the wonderful authors who contribute on a voluntary basis to this major national project, many of whom have done so over decades and over, in some cases, hundreds of articles. So on that note, please welcome Dr. Karen Fox. Thank you everyone for accepting me in Philip's place to read his paper. What is national biography for? You may be forgiven for thinking this was an easier question for previous generations to answer. In 1900, the original British Dictionary of National Biography reached completion with the publication of its 63rd and final volume. The event was hailed as a triumph by reviewers and the dictionary's compilers alike. The Pall Mall Gazette celebrated the best dictionary of home biography possessed of any nation, while the Athenium championed our British lexographers, who have had the satisfaction of administering a handsome beating to their most formidable rivals, the Germans. The DNB's editor at the time was the Elizabethan scholar Sidney Lee, 
who more than anyone had driven the project on during the 1890s and infused it with a new degree of scholarly rigour. Nonetheless, Lee celebrated the dictionary's completion in similar fashion, praising it as a more earnest endeavour to, to satisfy the just patriotic instinct than equivalent biographical dictionaries in Holland, Austria, Belgium, Sweden and again Germany. For Lee, the dictionary again served as a record of incremental national progress over time. It was, as he put it, a charting of, and I quote, the multiplication of intellectual callings and the specialisation of science and art that have been of late conspicuously augmented. The critic for the Edinburgh Review agreed, describing the completed DNB as striking proof of the advancement of civilization that was honorably characteristic of the present age. Ask what national biography was for in 1900, and the answer therefore seems clear, to facilitate national and historical comparisons that revealed the British to be best and the late Victorian British to be best of all. Nor was this idea of national biography as national point scoring reserved for the British. Those rival national biographies, which Lee and others readily belittled, were themselves formations and expressions of new nation states. As the historian Ian McCalman reminds us, whereas a newly established state of the late 20th century might seek to patent its identity by funding a national airline service, its 19th century counterpart was likely to have launched a multi-volume biographical dictionary so as to display historical credentials, to define geographical, linguistic and cultural boundaries and to, to instill a sense of national pride. McCalman's observation is taken from the introduction to the proceedings of the earlier conference held in Canberra 21 years ago at which national biographers gathered to discuss the relationship of national biography and national identity. I'm sure one interesting strand of this year's event will be to consider to what extent the ambitions and concerns of national biographers in 1995 have been realised, and to what extent debates over national biography have developed. And in this paper, I'll also draw attention to some of these earlier comments where they resonate with the subject I wish to discuss here, the purpose of national biography, past, present and future. By the time of the first Canberra conference, work was underway on a completely new and considerably extended edition of the Dictionary of National Biography, subsequently published in 2004, print and online, as the Oxford Dictionary of National Biography. Its founding editor was the 19th century historian Colin Matthew, who attended the ANU event in 1995 and used a lecture on that occasion to consider the purpose of his new dictionary. For Matthew, a late 20th and early 21st century national biography would be a work of historical record, a gathering and assessment of contributions by a historical profession whose origins owed much to the structures of the original DNB. In addition, Matthew envisaged the new DNB as serving the historical profession in teaching and research. The modern national biography will, he argued, be the first point of reference for anyone interested in the British biographical past. It would, as he presciently noted, also exist as a predominantly digital, or as we used to say then, electronic, resource. His national biography would therefore combine classic reference, being the first place to which people in search of information would turn, with the potential for connections and lines of inquiry hitherto untraced. 
The statements from 1901 and 1995 are therefore characterised by confidence in a job well done and optimism for the future. But where are we now? And what is National Biography for, 20 years on from Colin Matthews' comments? Certainly the present and future of National Biography may initially seem rather less certain. In his recent history of reference publishing, you could look it up, the reference shelf from Ancient Babylon to Wikipedia, 2016, the American literary scholar Jack Lynch has described the two decades separating the Canberra conferences as the most turbulent in the long history of a traditionally stable form of scholarship and publishing. Central to this change is, of course, the rise of online works such as Wikipedia and of reader-driven content which is vast both in terms of its scope and the speed of its appearance and revision. It's not hard to see why such developments are unwelcome for national biography not least since biography, and especially of figures in Western historical and contemporary culture, has been a major area of growth for Wikipedia in the past decade. There are, moreover, further potential challenges to the genre of national biography in our age. Prominent among these is the historiographical trend for transnational and global studies that raise questions over the value of the nation state and also perhaps a national dictionary as a meaningful category for human activity in the past. Closer to home, there's also the ongoing debate within Britain about the stability of the United Kingdom itself, now furiously reignited following the recent EU referendum vote which prompts further questions about the future of the British nation-state in particular. Viewed from summer 2016, the Athenium's equation of national biography as national celebration, or Colin Matthews' claim to provide the first point of reference, seem less secure than they once did. While not denying the seriousness of these challenges, it's not my intention to be overly gloomy in this paper. Far from it. The scholars and the projects gathered here in Canberra this weekend are evidence that national and collective biographies are many and varied and alive and kicking. I therefore hope that the two questions I'm posing, what is national biography for, and specifically what is it for at a time of digital change, will be of general interest since we all now work and publish in this context. I'm pleased therefore to raise these questions early on in the proceedings in the hope they may prompt ideas and discussion over the next few days. Central to my argument is the claim that the purpose of national biography is on the cusp of significant development and opportunity, and that, broadly speaking, we should be hopeful and enthusiastic about this and about how national biography may be incorporated within and contribute to historical scholarship in the future. My own prognosis for contemporary national biographies will inevitably focus on the work I know best, the Dictionary of National Biography. But I also hope to learn much from your experiences and ideas about the future of the genre. I'm only sorry that I'm unable to do so in person in Canberra this weekend. At the heart of my more positive future for national biographies is, of course, the very same digital revolution that's transformed reference publishing in recent years and has shaken the, some of the core beliefs that characterised the first Canberra gathering in 1995. To embrace digital opportunities in 2016 does not mean we must compete directly with online alternatives, but rather identify and promote ways in which national biographies online are and can be distinctive and superior. 
Central to this concept of national biography is, I'd argue, the potential it now provides to undertake original academic research. That is, the ability to use national biographies as collections and as data to make connections and see patterns that could not be identified without the existence of collective biography in its digital format. I will turn to some examples of this research potential via linking and new historical projects in a few moments. But first I'd like to return to my opening statements on what national biography was for in 1900 and 1995 and to set these enviably confident statements in a little more historical context. Despite the unified and positive opinions quoted earlier, it would be wrong to assume that past editors agreed on the purpose and scope of national biography. In truth, debates and disagreements have characterised the making of national biography since the 1880s and 1890s. We see this clearly in late Victorian debates over who should and should not be included in such works. In March 1896, Sidney Lee gave a lecture on national biography, which he later published in the Cornhill magazine. Here, Lee engaged directly with the question of inclusion and especially his understanding of national biography as a record of people of distinction. Biography, he argued, was the literary format best placed to commemorate those who, as Lee put it, by character and exploits have distinguished themselves from the mass of mankind and whose achievements are capable of moving the interest of prosperity, posterity and outliving the fashion or taste of the hour. Several months on, Leslie Stephen, the DNB's founding editor, gave his own lecture, also entitled National Biography, which subsequently appeared in the magazine National Review. In contrast to Lee's focus on commemorating and memorialising the distinguished, Stephen championed what he termed the third-rate lives and the less conspicuous people about whom it is hard to get information elsewhere. For Stephen, National Biography was a unique publishing opportunity to reconstruct those forgotten individuals whose lives have, as he put it, to be painfully dug out of collections of manuscripts or pieced together from references in memoirs and collections of letters. If such debates show how the purpose of National Biography has always been contested, they also remind us that the journey taken by the DNB from the late 19th to early 21st century is one of continuation and evolution, rather than sudden transition or redefinition. The continuities that shape national biography are clearly apparent when we consider the question of inclusion. Who should we add and why in a modern setting? Here the purpose of today's DNB resonates with that of Leslie Stephen and Sidney Lee, notwithstanding their own disagreements on this topic. Today at the Oxford DNB, we speak of national biography as a record of historically noteworthy lives. That is, people of interest to contemporary scholars, who will, we expect, also be of interest to later generations, not just with regard to the person him or herself, but also as a commentary on what modern historians considered important and worthy of note. In so doing, we follow Sidney Lee's call to remember those capable of moving the interest of posterity, albeit without Lee's insinuation of the moral value of such distinguished lives. 
At the same time, we also heed Leslie Stevens' injunction to reconstruct biographies of forgotten individuals whose life stories are dug from manuscript collections or pieced together from references in memoirs and correspondence. Today, of course, the opportunities to dig, discover and reconstruct are considerably enhanced by the growing availability of digitised resources. Easy online access to census returns, calendars of birth, marriage and death certificates, parish registers, probate inventories, wills, digitised newspapers, telephone directories and ship's passenger lists, to name just a few, make the work of discovery considerably easier than it was just five or ten years ago. In the writing of new lives, the availability of digitised sources is clearly of enormous benefit. But ready access to more information about more individuals in the past also raises an important question. Where should we stop when it comes to adding people to a national biography? In 2004, the historian Sir Keith Thomas pondered this in a lecture to mark the publication of the Oxford DNB. As Thomas noted, following the rise of social and cultural history, scholars now engage with all sections of past populations, and often do so in the wake of the biographical turn via the medium of individual and group lives. There is in principle, he wrote, no reason why many of these hidden lives should not be recovered and there is no technological obstacle to storing them electronically. One day, perhaps, we may have a database so vast that its claim to be a true national biography will be incontrovertible. Of course, the final part of Keith Thomas's quotation also features as a, as a theme in the publicity for this conference. In short, is a true national biography, comprised of the myriad lives now traceable online, a suitable destination for current journeys in national biography? This seems to me a particularly interesting topic in the context of the Oxford DNB, which has adopted historical noteworthiness as its defining criterion for inclusion. This is at odds with the concept of representativeness that has shaped the population of the dictionary, the Australian Dictionary of Biography, and is further discussed as a framing principle of the ADB in two recent articles by one of its former deputy editors, Paul Arthur. Noteworthiness is a historical judgment on who is now and who may be considered of interest to current and future generations of scholars as determined by the dictionary's current editors. Representativeness, by contrast, is more concerned with an accurate reflection of the past through a spectrum of lives that best characterise a particular period. Noteworthiness, it seems to me, imposes some limits on who should be included as judged by historically informed editors and so sets limits on Keith Thomas's idea of vast, or vaster, databases that lead to a true national biography. In Oxford, we receive petitions from relatives and friends seeking the inclusion of an ancestor on a fairly regular basis. Some of these are excellent suggestions and are reviewed and added to the dictionary. But others do not pass the noteworthy test, and for these we suggest other forms of publication, via blogs, Wikipedia, or Facebook, each alternative forms of technology that have greatly expanded the opportunities for life writing since Thomas's observation in 2004. In this context, one purpose of contemporary national biography may be to hold the line between who should be included and who could be included, based on historical assessment. Irrespective of whether, or indeed precisely because, that life can now be written with access to digital sources. 
For the remainder of this paper, I'd like to pursue the theme of contemporary national biography a little further by asking, what is today's national biography for, and what might it be for, in an age of digital history? Here I'd like to make three suggestions, and to illustrate them with examples of work we're currently undertaking online at the Oxford DNB. I said earlier that I didn't want to be too gloomy about the recent revolution in digitisation and reference publishing, but rather to see it as an opportunity for giving national biography a new purpose. What follows, if you like, are my three reasons to be cheerful as regards the present and future of national biography. First, there is Wikipedia, and specifically how we engage with it, a topic I suspect others will raise during this conference. As already noted, Wikipedia undoubtedly poses considerable challenges to national biography as we understand it. That is, as curated collections of texts written and signed by specialist authors overseen by academic editors. But there are also important distinctions between entries in Wikipedia and in national biographies, and we should celebrate these distinctions where they are to our advantage. In thinking about this relationship, I've been helped greatly by a 2006 journal article by the American radical historian Roy Rosenzweig, in which he compared a selection of historical biographies in Wikipedia with their equivalents in the American National Biography, or ANB. He found that on the question of facts and factual accuracy, there was little to distinguish the entries in these two sources. However, as a collection of signed works by specialist authors, the A and B proved far superior as a written text and a work of history. Since the days of Leslie Stephen, national biographies have been recognised and created as historical works, not just encyclopedias, which has meant paying attention to the artistry, clarity and good judgement that defines good historical writing. This will not come as a surprise to you, but it is worth remembering when we seek to promote national biography to our students. In contrast to national biographies, Wikipedia is also actively resistant to the inclusion of original research or informed opinion. Indeed, the proposal of new research in Wikipedia expressly contravenes one of its core founding principles. By contrast, modern national biographies are, as we've seen, rich repositories of original research, and increasingly so. While one approach is to expose differences and debates, it's also important to realise that Wikipedia, given its pervasiveness, cannot be beaten. We must therefore also work with it where we can. At the Oxford DNB, we've found the Wikipedia community very helpful in, for example, adding or standardising citations to our dictionary where they appear at the foot of an entry and in creating links from a Wikipedia text to the relevant biography on the Oxford site. Via these links, it's possible, we hope, for the ODNB to remain, if not the first, then at least the second point of biographical reference for many students, and perhaps still to retain its status as the first point of considered historical reference. A second reason for optimism is that online national biographies are highly adaptable and extensible, not least through external and reciprocal linking. When it was first published in 2004, the ODNB included many thousands of links to external resources that connected individual biographies to, for example, a person's portraits in the National Portrait Gallery or his or her papers as listed by the National Archives. 
In 2015, we returned to the subject of links to external repositories and are now extending the number and scope of these curated connections. Recently added links include those to an individual's digitised manuscripts in the British Library, to records of funeral monuments in Westminster Abbey and St Paul's Cathedral, to images and addresses of houses in which a person has lived via English Heritage's Blue Plaque Scheme, and to historical voice recordings as held by the British Library, the Poetry Society and the BBC's Radio and Film Archive. Later this year, we'll add further reciprocal links to the financial records of 18th and 19th century British slave owners, as recently uncovered at the National Archives, to the new Art UK website, which connects 2,200 British artists in the ODNB to digitised collections of their artworks, and to the Wargraves Commission website for those killed in combat between 1914 and 1918. These linking projects offer interesting alternative perspectives on a person's life. With them, dictionary users are now able to move from a traditional biographical text to curated content showing examples of handwriting or artworks, where a person lived, and who else in ODNB lived nearby, or the sound of their voice or sight of their mannerisms via sound and film footage. This ability to see a person or to hear them speak is a particularly important innovation. Like nothing else, it reminds us that a distant historical figure was a living person, as well as the subject of a biographical text. Sound and vision promise to bring a new dimension to national biography. It's also worth noting that while these editions are relatively new, they've long been considered. At the first Canberra conference in 1995, the DNB's editor Colin Matthew foresaw the potential of digital national biography predicting, we may in time be able to have Churchill's biography, plus a recording of him speaking and a film of him electioneering. Last month, we added these very links from the ODNB's Churchill article via the BBC archives. Online national biography is also extensible in terms of format. A good example is the ODNB's biography podcast, which has been running since 2008 and now offers over 250 recordings of lives read aloud by professional voice actors. With some editing, the consistent format of a national biography entry lends itself well to the podcast treatment. Episodes range from 10 minutes to tell the story of John Simpson Kirkpatrick, the man with the donkey at Gallipoli, to 40 minutes for an edited version of the life and legacy of Mary Wollstonecraft. The podcast format has also proved popular with roughly 200,000 downloads per month. Recently, we've also uploaded 150 biography recordings to the audio website SoundCloud, making quality content more easily accessible to people who would never dream of coming to a reference work like the ODNB. Social media more generally provides numerous opportunities to share biographical content relating to anniversaries and news events. At the ODNB, we've enthusiastically embraced blogs, Facebook, and especially Twitter. The latter offers an excellent means to promote one's own content or to overhear what others are saying about you. And in some cases, these digital conversations have led to new commissions and revisions. What is contemporary national biography for in this context? Here we can point to its capacity to provide engaging, topical and popular content and to converse directly with readers and a digitally literate generation of scholars. My third and final proposal is that, 
as, a digital, as digital resources, contemporary national biography should be better promoted as a source for original historical research. That is, to interpret and study the past in ways impossible without the availability of a collection online. This potential for national biographies as a starting point for research, rather than as mere repositories of existing knowledge, has long been recognised. Writing about the Oxford D&B in 2007, the Cambridge historian Stefan Collini noted, Future generations will make use of this vast consolidation of scholarly knowledge in ways that may be barely imaginable to us now. More recently, Melanie Nolan has drawn attention to the online research potential of the Australian Dictionary of Biography to study the associational patterns of Australians and their place in biographical history. These are very welcome and sensible aspirations. But in reality, getting students and scholars to appreciate the potential riches of online national biography, and particularly of its underlying metadata, is proving harder than we might expect. Last year, in an attempt to encourage uses of this kind, the Oxford DNB introduced an annual research bursary program to encourage scholars to engage with the ODNB, not as a dictionary, but as a source for new scholarship to address defined research questions in the humanities. Now coming to the end of its first year, the bursary has thus far enabled one postdoctoral student to undertake a prosopographical survey of early modern schoolmasters, and one economic historian to trace the social and monetary networks that arose from the 18th century South Sea bubble crisis. It is a modest but positive start, and we are currently selecting three new bursary recipients to work with us in the academic year 2016-2017. While getting historians to engage with the ODNB is a challenge, a few enterprising scholars have come to us with research proposals. One is Professor Christopher Warren of Carnegie Mellon University, who's used the ODNB as a source for his Six Degrees of Francis Bacon project. This provides a visualisation of 17th century social networks drawn from textual references in dictionary biographies of men and women active between 1500 and 1700. Christopher's method is to run the ODNB's 72 million words of text through named entity recognition software, first to extract personal names and then to infer social relations, who knew whom based on the incidence and relation of personal names within individual dictionary entries. The results are probabilistic, and the visualisation of early modern social relations is suggestive, being based on written dictionary texts rather than proven relations. Nonetheless, the findings are interesting in several ways. First, the networks allow us to trace those who may have had associates in common, and to infer potential relations from these. In effect, if X knew Y and Y knew Z, might X also have known Z? Second, by visualising social relations as graphs of nodes and edges, we're able to identify individuals who are frequently named in the ODNB articles of others, but who do not themselves have dictionary entries. Such individuals, nodes, are rich in social contacts, edges. Typically, these people made their living as teachers, printers or publishers. That is, as figures pivotal to early modern intellectual society, but who probably left little tangible mark. Such projects thus provide ways to identify additional hidden people and potential candidates for research and inclusion in future dictionary updates. Having used the Oxford DNB's text as a source for early modern social networks, 
Carnegie Mellon's next project is to use the dictionary to study the relationship of people to places, and especially Britain's involvement in the world from the medieval to the modern period. This secondary project will use new methods in literary and digital history to read the big data of the full ODNB corpus, with particular reference to international place names. Analysis of the density of place names will, it's hoped, allow us to chart changing patterns of Britain's international engagement, from 12th century Normandy to 18th century Italy to 19th century India, as well as shifts in the incidence of international travel over time. In addition to the Carnegie Mellon project, we're now developing our own plan to bring together and link discrete national biographical data sets, British, American and continental European, to show how known individuals appear across different national biographies and how people from different national remits feature in selected locations worldwide. With internationally linked biographical data in place, it becomes possible to undertake research projects that explore the transnational movement of people, from early modern diplomatic networks and international grand tourism, to the presence and co-mingling of different professions and nationalities in regions such as the Indian subcontinent. 21 years ago at the first Canberra conference, there was much talk of the potential to interconnect national biographies online. Now, finally, we are beginning to explore these possibilities and their potential for a form of transnational history, shaped and informed and humanised by historical biography. Global history, which initially seemed a challenge, may in fact prove a discipline on which national biography has much to contribute. To finish, here is one further example of how national biographies can serve as prompts for new research without having to resort to digital historical techniques such as linked data, natural language processing, or distant readings of big data. Online dictionaries like those for America, Australia, Britain, Canada, and Ireland already provide users with powerful and extensive search options capable of generating interesting research opportunities. As you'll be aware, the opening day of the ANU conference is the centenary of the first day of the Battle of the Somme. A simple text search for Somme as a place identifies 270 people in the ODNB whose entries refer to the battle. In a matter of seconds, we have access to hundreds of biographies that engage with a historical event. Whether these individuals were combatants, victims, filmmakers, medical staff, historians, or the parents, spouses, and children of those who were directly involved. Very quickly, therefore, we have the starting point for a project to study the impact of a single day on multiple generations of Britons, active between the later 19th and the mid-20th century. I began this paper by suggesting that today's national biographers may not speak of their work with the same confidence as their predecessors. To an extent, this is so. Changes in digital research and publishing do present us with a number of challenges. But as I hope I've indicated in this paper, while the nature of and potential for national biography is certainly changing fast, the genre, ever prone to debate regarding its purpose, is far from undergoing an existential crisis. Contemporary national biography serves multiple purposes, from traditional qualities, such as quick reference, background reading and fact-checking, to newer opportunities, to tracing a single life through linked online resources, and the potential for big data research into professions, networks, and places over time. Consequently, we're now thinking more carefully about the relationship between national biography and history, 
and the opportunities for national biography to ensure more personal and humane perspectives on big digital history. The availability of online national biography and new digital historical approaches may now provide us with new opportunities for intersecting biography and history. But here again, we're reminded how the journey of national biography and of the Dictionary of National Biography in particular has been evolutionary and organic. As a result, much of what we do now and will do in the future is simply an alternative manifestation of a long-standing principle. In his lecture of 1896, Leslie Stephen also questioned what national biography was for and answered it with characteristic insight. As Stephen wrote on that occasion, the proper office of the national biographer is to facilitate what I may call the proper reaction between biography and history, to make each throw all possible light on the other. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Karen and, and Philip, for that wonderful presentation. And now it's my great honour and privilege to welcome our next speaker, Professor Sir David Canadine. He's a historian of modern British history, focusing on the period 1800 to 2000. He's visiting professor in history at Oxford University and Dodge Professor in History at Princeton University, and since 2014 has been the general editor of the Oxford Dictionary of National Biography. He has previously taught at Cambridge, Columbia and London, where he was director of the Institute of Historical Research. He has published extensively on aspects of social, cultural, political and imperial history from this period, with a particular focus on the British aristocracy, urban development and the structure of power in British towns, issues of class, in, in Britain and the themes of cultural expression and ceremony, both within Britain and its empire. He's a former chairman of the National Portrait Gallery in London and of the Blue Plaques panel. Among his many books are The Decline and Fall of the British Aristocracy, Class in Britain, Ornamentalism, How the British Saw Their Empire, Making History Now and Then, The Undivided Past, as well as a number of major biographies. His talk today is on the topic of Oxford in the World, the Oxford Dictionary of National Biography and Global Biography. Please join me in welcoming Professor Sir David Canadine. Uh, good morning, everyone. Thank you, Paul, for that very kind uh, introduction. Since um, I earn my living by talking as well as by writing, I have become a connoisseur of introductions to myself, not, it must be said, a fiercely competed for position. Um, and when um, I was on the road uh, in the United States with my biography of Andrew Mellon, uh, I did a turn uh, in Kansas, um, and there was a dinner first, and then I had to speak afterwards, and the person in charge of the proceedings said, it's a huge pleasure to welcome David Canadine. He, has, he is the author of the greatest biography of Andrew Mellon ever written. And I thought this, uh, the evening promised rather well at this point. And he then rather sport the effect by adding, it is, of course, the only biography of 
Andrew Mellon ever written. Anyway, thank you for not saying that, Paul, and for the nice things that you did say. It's a huge pleasure, as it always is, to be back here in Canberra, which I persist in regarding as one of the most ravishingly beautiful of Australian cities, especially on a day like this, and especially to be back at ANU, which I also regard as one of the great universities of the world. Uh, and I do bring warm and fraternal greetings from all the OUP, ODNB team in Oxford, uh, especially Philip Carter, who was so sorry not to be here, and thank you, Karen, for having read his paper so well. Before I get to the substance of what I want to say, let me make one or two general observations, uh, if I might. The first one is simply to say on behalf of the ODNB, I don't presume to speak for other dictionaries, that the points, many of the points raised by Melanie and raised in questions to Melanie and her colleagues in the first session absolutely resonated with our experience uh, in Oxford as well. Uh, the issue of hard copy publication versus online publication, the issue of what we do about transnational lives, the criteria of selection, uh, is it noteworthiness, notoriety, or reprehensibleness, or representativeness are issues that we all struggle with, what we do about updating entries when evidence, new evidence becomes available, and what we do about changing perspectives over time. These are all issues, I think, with which many of us are struggling, and of course, the longer these dictionaries stay in being and stay in business, the more likely these issues are to come up. I was very struck the question about Sir William Slim, uh, based, of course, uh, no doubt in particular on the details of his uh, activities, but also, of course, that in the Western world at the moment, the whole issue of child abuse has become perhaps the most reprehensible form of human misdemeanor that people are preoccupied with. And this is going to have implications for how we write or rewrite the entries of recently deceased people or people deceased further back, like Sir William Slim. And I ponder this a lot because suppose in 10 or 20 or 30 years' time, um, the most heinous misdemeanor changes. Suppose, for example, it becomes that the most deplorable people are people who eat meat. Not a wholly inconceivable point. Keith Thomas often mentioned this morning, uh, said at the time he published his book on animals and uh, nature, that he thought it was quite likely going forward that the Western world would outlaw the eating of meat. Well, suppose that happens, as it were, uh, in years that I certainly won't see, but 20 or 30 or 40 years' time. Suppose the most reprehensible form of human behaviour is deemed to be eating meat rather than molesting children. How would we have to redo the Oxford Dictionary of National Biography in the light of that? And in particular, who then, to focus that point a little more precisely, would emerge as the greatest British Prime Minister? Wouldn't any longer be Gladstone, who said you had to chew every mouthful of meat 32 times? It certainly wouldn't be Churchill, who was a carnivore uh, to the uh, hilt, as it were. Uh, it wouldn't be Margaret Thatcher. Uh, it wouldn't be any of the current pantheon of those still deemed to be the greatest British Prime Minister. It would be Andrew Bonner Law, the only vegetarian Prime Minister thus far, who would have been seen as anticipating the zeitgeist of the future in the way that none of these more reprehensible and incorrigible carnivores uh, could be uh, given the uh, excuse of having done. So this whole issue of how perspective alters uh, and what we deem to be acceptable, what we don't deem to be acceptable as standards of judgment change is, I think, inevitably uh, something that's going to preoccupy dictionaries as they go forward. And, of course, the ODNB and its predecessor, the Dictionary of National Biography, is the one, in a sense, with the biggest set of issues on this because it's been in being for the longest amount of time. 
Two other points I'd like to make, if I may, which seem to me to get to the heart of what this conference is about, uh, as it were, moving on from that earlier conference of 1995. What are the two big issues that uh, sum up uh, all of the sessions that we are hoping to have here today? It seems to me the first issue, which was raised in the previous uh, section, was that of a cultural journey. That's to say how we make uh, entries, uh, not just going forward, but also looking backwards, uh, more varied. The issue of more women, the issue of more ethnic minorities, the issue of sexual orientation, the issue of private lives. This is a much bigger preoccupation now than it was in 1995 or at any point before that. And all of us, I suspect, uh, with our respective dictionaries, are trying to do that. Aided and abetted, of course, by the revolution in IT, which makes it possible to know things about people's lives that it wasn't so easy to know 20 or 30 years ago. And also, of course, enabling us to deliver um, our findings online in a way that, again, wasn't true uh, 20 or 30 years ago. That, I think, is the one big issue that we are struggling with or talking about or exchanging views and notes and experiences on today and tomorrow. The second big issue seems to me to be the impact of globalization and of global history on national biographical dictionaries, which, in a sense, is part of this session now and other sessions later on. And that, in turn, subdivides into two questions, I think. How should biographical dictionaries, conceived in an essentially national and sometimes nationalistic mode, adjust or adapt to an increasingly globalized world, a globalized world past, present, and future? And the second sub-question is what part might national dictionaries play in the upscaling of biographical dictionaries from being national to being global? And it's fair to say, I think, that at OUP, uh, certainly uh, in Oxford, at the DNB there, we're thinking a lot about both of those issues, and it's rather reassuring that this conference more broadly, I think, is concerned with both of those issues. And today, if I may, in my first appearance, if I can put it that way, I want to engage with that first question, and tomorrow with Barry Jones, I'll perhaps try and engage a bit with what we're thinking about in Oxford on the second issue of global biographies. But today, it really is the issue about um, how national biographies have been altered, uh, or at least the ODNB, and enhanced by the impact of globalization, whereas tomorrow I'll talk a bit about our dictionaries of global biography, not just upscale dictionaries of national biography, but perhaps something completely different. Let me start then, if I may, in terms of the substance of what I want to say, with the new set of lives that we put up uh, at the ODNB in January 2016. This is the people who had died in 2012. One of the main things we've done since the great blue volumes occur, appeared in uh, 2004 is, of course, each year to keep updating with a four-year time lag people who've died. And, of course, in that sense, we shall never go out of business because people always keep dying. I've always thought that the motto of dictionaries of national biography probably ought to be where there's death, there's hope. <laughs> <coughs> Now, one of the things that is interesting about the set of lives we put up uh, in January this year, which were people who had died in 2012, uh, is that they are full of examples of the sort of transnational lives that are now being added to the ODNB and according to different criteria of inclusion. For example, among the lives that we put up in January were British-born figures who would go to and make their careers in the United States. 
Alexander Cockburn, radical journalist and social critic associated with the nation, born in Cromarty, moved to the United States in 1972, where he lived until his death, very much paralleling and perhaps anticipating the life of Christopher Hitchens, who was added to the ODNB the year before. Or, for example, the hairdresser Vidal Sassoon, born in the East End of London at Whitechapel, but whose later career, uh, both as a hairstylist and as a business person, was lived out uh, in California. Or, looking at things the other way, American-born subjects who came to and made their careers in the United Kingdom. Eve Arnold, born in Philadelphia, a journalistic career initially in the United States, then moved to Britain in 1961, and thereafter had a very close association with the Sunday Times. Or Marie Colvin, born in New York City, resident in London for most of her life, became the Sunday Times Middle East correspondent in 1989, and was, of course, tragically killed in Syria. Or another category of these transnational lives, religious and political exiles from Germany and Eastern Europe in the 1930s. Most famous example of those lives we put up uh, in January this year, Eric Hobsbawm, born in Alexandria uh, in Egypt, fled to London from Berlin in 1933, in many ways a member of the British establishment, and not just the British communist establishment, but the whole of the British establishment, but also living an extraordinary international life, not just before he came to London, but in a sense after that as well, spending, of course, 10 years from 1965 lecturing at the New School uh, in New York. Or Eva Feiges, a feminist and author who came from Germany in 1938. A fourth category, perhaps slightly more predictable international lives, people whose professional life took them out of Britain, even as they were in some sense representing Britain uh, or embodying Britain overseas, such as Rex Hunt, governor of the Falkland Islands from 1980 to 1985, who had been born in Redcar in Yorkshire, or just a little bit earlier, the British diplomat Nico Henderson, ambassador successively to Poland, West Germany, France, and the United States. And the last category here, complicated transnational lives, lives spent in several locations of which Britain was only one, particularly a feature of elite sports men and women. For example, the South African-born cricketer Tony Gregg, whose mother was South African, whose father was Scottish. He played cricket in England. He became the England captain and followed, of course, by a final phase of his career as a cricketer here in Australia. Well, what that, of course, helps us to appreciate, I think, is that for good or ill, for good and ill, British history has been made by Brits, not just in Britain, uh, but overseas as well. And British history has also been made by people from overseas coming to Britain and living out their lives there. And I think it's fair to say that the ODNB has been more aware of that set of issues uh, than the original DNB was, although the original DNB was, I think, more aware of these issues than perhaps some accounts of its founding intentions would suggest. So let me have a look at the original remit or ambition of the old DNB and what people made of it, both in terms of those involved in doing it and those in, ter in terms of those involved in reviewing it. 
It's important to remember that unlike, for instance, uh, the Australian Dictionary of National Biography, uh, the, o the DNB did not start out as a state-supported or university-sponsored enterprise. The publisher, George Smith, his original hope was for what he called a dictionary of universal biography, taking as his model the 40-volume bi biography Universelle published in Paris between 1843 and 1863. Smith's original conception of a universal biographical dictionary was on reflection and on the advice of Leslie Stephen, soon cut down to national coverage. But Stephen's view of late Victorian British nationality was, in Colin Matthews' words, inclusive, fluid, and pragmatic, and, in a sense, international. Stephen's concern at Smith's originally intended universal project was manageability rather than patriotism, that a universal biography would just be too big a task to take on, not that it was a bad idea, and that it had to be narrowed down for practical purposes to something that was more manageable and maybe writing about Britain would work. And one of the original early names considered for that narrowed-down work was simply the New Biographical Dictionary, uh, in which the word nation didn't appear at all. And it is fair to say that the original DNB project was, to a certain extent, a self-consciously and deliberately cosmopolitan one, reflected by the fact that the first and last subjects in the dictionary, Jacques Abadie and William Henry Zuleistein, were respectively French and Dutch-born, but not English or British. And it's interesting that although perhaps conceived in a more cosmopolitan and less patriotic and hero-worshipping way than some might have thought, the reaction to the original DNB was varied. Some people applauded and this was one of the early pieces, uh, volumes that came out in 1887, applauded the dictionary's ability to illustrate the cosmopolitan character of our nation, as evidenced by the fact that various foreign-born people were included. But another journal called the Athenaeum deplored the fact that the original DNB included people who it described as complete foreigners because it was thought they shouldn't be in. And it certainly was the case, um, as Philip's piece has already explained, that there were some who took the ODNB, uh, the DNB, by the time it came out uh, and was finished in the late 19th century, as being an embodiment of national superiority. And that was certainly the view, to some degree, of Sidney Lee, who succeeded Stephen as editor, though it wasn't, in fact, Stephen's view himself. And it's also fair to say that as the 20th century supplements went on decade by decade through until the 1980s, there was perhaps a growing sense that it was becoming an establishment roll call of national preeminence, but that again was never the whole of the story. People who were involved in making history elsewhere than in Britain were certainly in. People who came to Britain from elsewhere were certainly in. And of course, the DNB, like the ODNB, has got its share of baddies and reprehensible figures, um, as well as good and admirable figures. Uh, noteworthiness can often mean nastiness rather than virtue. So Crippin was in the original, one of the original supplements, and so, of course, was Myra Hindley. And more recently, we have put in Jimmy Savile. So the original vision was actually more complicated than simply suggesting, as some people did at the time, and some historians have since, that it was a pantheon of the great and the good. Uh, it was, in fact, conceived in a much more liberal, internationalist, cosmopolitan mode than that. And even if it did 
veer a bit in that direction after Stephen, uh, it nevertheless always remained true, I think, in some ways, to that broader vision. Well, what has the ODNB done since then, the, the later uh, renewed and rejuvenated version begun in the 1990s and, of course, published as the Many Blue Volumes in 2004? This is what the introduction to the 2004 edition of the ODNB actually said. It was decided to continue the DNB's policy of including no living person and to choose the 31st of December 2000 as the terminal date, a century after the original DNB's coverage had ended. Much more difficult was nationality. Colin Matthew felt that Stephen's title for the Dictionary of National Biography was brilliant because it did not require him to define what that nationality actually was, rather like the Queen's head on postage stamps. The DNB asserted nationality, but carefully avoided defining it. This allowed a policy of inclusion that would be like Stephen's pragmatic and flexible, as exemplified by the first and last entries uh, in Stephen's original dictionary. And Colin wished to continue the Leslie Stephen idea, I think, of the libertarian, free trading and internationalist outlook prevalent among late Victorian liberals. The chronological span of the DNB and its supplements also, of course, by definition, encompass periods of Roman, Anglo-Saxon, Danish, Norman, and Angevin dominion, separate kingdoms within what became England, Ireland, Scotland, and Wales, and the subsequent dramatic expansion and contraction of British rule overseas. So the geographical bounds of the nation taken across those two millennia or more of British history were constantly, uh, in fact, changing, a, a point I will come back to. In preparing the Oxford DNB, Matthew proposed in his report of April 1993 to adopt a working definition of nationality, often implicit but unstated in the original DNB, which treated the inhabitants of the British Isles as, and this is Colin's phrase, a nation in effect, even though for much of its history, the history of the British Isles was not at all the history of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland. At the same time, Matthew emphasized the inherent pluralism of its constituent nationalities and aimed to enhance the dictionary's coverage of Ireland, Scotland, Wales, the Isle of Man, and the Channel Islands by including people from all these different regions of the British Isles and also paying more attention to Britons who had been in British territories overseas. The original Dictionary of National Biography had included people who lived in overseas territories under British rule and who might never have set foot in the British Isles at all. By occasionally including people such as Commonwealth Prime Ministers, the DNB original supplements had continued this earlier practice, though on a more limited scale. As with all the people in the DNB, Matthew included them in the new dictionary. And in assessing the claims of further such entrants, he was influenced by how far they had interacted with British concerns, by whether they were, this again was Colin's phrase, known to Whitehall. This meant that people in overseas territories were not included if they were notable only within those areas or cultures. On the other hand, people who played some significant part in the territory's relations with British imperial power, whether as clients and government servants or as opponents of that power could still be considered for inclusion, and could those whose significance extended into British cultural and intellectual life.
More articles on Southern Ireland, the Irish Republic, since 1922 were warranted, both on the known to Whitehall principle, given that Southern Ireland remained a member of the Commonwealth until 1945, and to accommodate people who had been British subjects during the creation of the new state. As for former colonial territories, the original DNB and its supplements had tended to focus on the governments of Australia, Canada, India, New Zealand and South Africa. The new ODNB, while maintaining and increasing that coverage, aimed to extend the known to Whitehall principle within other formal, former colonial territories, such as those in other parts of Africa and the Caribbean. So here was the summary which came out with the publication of all of the volumes in 2004. This was the summary of what the British nation, as it were, was, or maybe wasn't. The dictionary, that's to say the new ODNB, covers people who were born and lived in the British Isles, people from the British Isles who achieved recognition in other countries, people who lived in territories formerly connected to the British state at a time when they were in contact with British rule, and people born elsewhere who settled in the British Isles for significant periods or whose visits enabled them to leave a mark on British life. And that was the summary of the criteria, in a sense the geographical criteria at least, for inclusion in the ODNB uh, in 2004. It's not particularly neat, it is perhaps in some ways rather messy, but in its own way it also seems to me to be appropriate uh, and uh, workable. The result of this was that in some areas, the ODNB differed from the original dictionary in its approach to Britain's colonial past. For instance, and unlike its predecessor, the ODNB included biographies of 800 pre-revolutionary American lives who were first-time additions to the dictionary in 2004. In line with its policy of covering the makers and first generation of independent states, the ODNB includes biographies of the first four United States presidents. It also includes a group essay on the founding fathers, which bring together many of the, the revolutionary generation and also its immediate descendants. Invariably, the relationship of Britain in the world is viewed in terms of the impact of British people overseas. But the ODNB's chronological range also ensures that the dictionary reflects those responsible for the invasion and settlement of parts of the British Isles. Other areas of coverage new to the ODNB include 150 biographies of notable Roman officials active in Britain during the time when it was a Roman colony. Likewise, Norman companions and collaborators of William the Conqueror and Viking and Scandinavian invaders in the 9th and 10th century. Indeed, the earliest identifiable subject in the ODNB, not in the original dictionary, is the explorer Pythias, the Greek author of the first known account of the British Isles, who flourished in the 4th century BC. Since 2004, Commentaries about the ODNB have routinely referred to it, and this is a kind of summary of the summary I've already given you, as the record of 60,000 men and women who shaped British history worldwide. The record of 60,000 men and women who shaped British history worldwide. New histories of transnationalism highlight the importance of the movement of ideas as well as of people. ODNB entries of major world figures pay attention to the global reach of such individuals. 
Exo for example, uh, there are sections on American, Russia, and Japan in the ODNB's entry on Shakespeare, that's to say his global influence, uh, mostly after his death, or on the importance in other countries than Britain of John Locke for the development of political thought. Well, that's, as it were, a, a rapid canter through the ways in which the ODNB, as uh, env envisaged by Colin Matthew and as eventually published in 2004, sought to move on from, even while continuing to cherish some of the values of, the original uh, dictionary of Leslie Stephen. And one of the ways in which it did that was to take a rather different and broader view of the notion that British history is something that doesn't just happen in Britain, where it's made by non-Brits as well as Brits, but also in many other parts of the world. Well, what has happened since as we have this annual cycle of publication updates? Well, as I've already mentioned, speaking about the January uh, 2016 update, every January we do the new lives of the people who died four years ago. Um, and as I've already suggested from some of the examples I've given, a very considerable number of those new lives added on in, 20, in January 2016 are people who have lived global or transnational lives in a whole variety of different ways. The other thing that we do, the other sort of updates which come out in May and in September, are working on other earlier historical lives, which for a variety of reasons we are now able to include in a way that hadn't been true in 2004 and certainly hadn't been true with the original dictionary. And these may be divided between projects charting the history of the formal empire, of informal empire, of political and religious exile and asylum, trade and exploration, war, the rise of nationalist movements within colonial territories, and the emergence of transnational careers in science or medicine or popular culture. As research projects, and these are all still running, or at least many of them still are, they range from long-term surveys, long-running surveys, to extend the ODNB's coverage, empire and commonwealth, and black and Asian lives, which run to hundreds of new additions to smaller one-off projects. These include such subjects as South American lives, the influence of British people in South America, especially at the time of the wars for independence in the 1810s and the 1820s. South African lives, principally of figures active before the Union of South Africa in 1910. China and Japan. Early modern coverage includes visiting Chinese artists and language scholars to Britain. Later coverage includes British-born missionaries and civil engineers and scientists working in the Far East. Early modern courts and diplomacy as agents for transnationalism. French and Spanish diplomats during the British Civil Wars, Hanoverian courtiers and diplomats from the 1710s. And also international networks and groups Examples include members of the Third Crusade, participants in the field of the Cloth of Gold, the Pilgrim Fathers, the Darien Investors, um, the Randlords and Milner's Kindergarten. Other lives to emerge from research projects highlight similar transnational themes. Recent updates, for example, on the shapers of British cinema highlighted the importance of German and East European-born directors and actors for the development of the British film industry from, 19, from the 1920s, and the update also identifies a number of Hollywood-based figures who moved from America to Britain in the 1930s, and others, of course, who moved uh, the other way. And it's worth mentioning 
that the May update, the most recent update that we have published, includes a whole variety of new South Asian lives. Uh, the elder brother of the poet Tagore, himself an accomplished playwright and musician, and also Tagore's younger sister, who was the author of novels, short stories, plays, and the first operetta libretto in Bengali. We've also included the Calcutta-born writer and illustrator, Sakumar Ray, and the British-born Indian missionary, William Winstanley Pearson. Uh, we've also included Hugh Francis Clark Cleghorn, born in Madras, brought up in Scotland, where he studied medicine at the University of Edinburgh, returned to Madras as a surgeon, but later gained enormous uh, prominence for being the presidency's first forest conservator. And also Sir Jagandish Chandra Bose, born near Dakar, but who trained uh, in Cambridge and then specialised in physics when he went back to India. And all of those lives, uh, among many others, have recently been posted uh, just last month. Well, what sort of opportunities does this enhanced international coverage afford? Philip talked a bit about some aspects of that um, in his paper, but let me offer one or two others. With the important caveat that it's crucial to remember that the British, the ODNB, 60,000 entries are what might be termed a curated list of historical figures whose lives accord with the dictionary's inclusion criteria. It is not a full data set of British national life of the sort that Keith Thomas has called for. But its comprehensiveness in certain areas of national life does allow for comparative surveys by those interested in transnationalism. For example, a recent project has extended the ODNB's coverage of the pre-Reformation episcopacy to offer entries on all medieval bishops, allowing for comparative studies of geographical origins, international movement and relations between papal and royal authorities. Read biographically, events that are typically perceived as being of exclusively national interest can take on a transnational dimension. For example, Magna Carta, invariably read as a defining text of English common law, also has a significant international dimension, not least because the property interests of allegedly English magnates extended far across uh, to continental Europe as well. Through the dictionary's coverage of professional categories such as the East India Company, it's not a comprehensive coverage, but it does offer a starting point for comparative historical surveys of social origins, educational background, or career development of company members. There are 1,740 biographies in the ODNB which refer to the East India Company and another 400 which refer to the Indian Civil Service. Similarly, Place searching in the ODNB allows scholars to identify potential networks. The dictionary currently includes entries on more than 200 men and women born in India and resident in London between 1880 and 1920, some of whom I've just mentioned. Well, where ought I to try to end all this by way of what is inevitably uh, no more than a provisional conclusion, because of course one of the points that I hope emerges from what I've just said, and indeed from what was said earlier on, is that these biographical dictionaries are no longer authoritatively encapsulated within bound volumes, but are constantly works uh, in progress.
And let me return to a point, in fact, which Paul made by way of introduction by an entirely flukish set of circumstances. I have found myself associated with what can be seen, though in my view mistakenly, as the three great British enterprises of 19th century commemoration built around the nation state. That's to say the National Portrait Gallery, whose trustees I chaired, uh, the Blue Plaques panel, which I chaired, and now the Oxford Dictionary of National Biography, of which I'm general editor. It is, I think, fair to say that all three of these can be seen as enterprises in national self-identity and in patriotic celebration, though it seems to me that in every case, if one looks in more detail at the founding principles and the founding people, it was always actually more complicated than that, even as, of course, as we have different preoccupations now, we have interests and priorities and concerns which were not the interests and priorities and concerns of people of that time. But it is worth noting, I think, that the National Portrait Gallery has on its walls uh, figures, uh, portraits of people who made British history overseas. The Duke of Wellington would be one classic example. Uh, Lord Hastings uh, in India would be another. And it is increasingly commissioning portraits of people born abroad who have lived their lives in Britain. Germaine Greer would be one obvious example, uh, born here, of course, in Australia. Willard White, uh, born in Jamaica, would be another. And as it were, the mix of uh, portraits in the National Portrait Gallery is, I think, shifting away from Brits who did things overseas and more in the direction of people coming to Britain and making their lives there. Blue Plaques, of course, focused on London, the most cosmopolitan of all British cities, uh, does have a very high proportion of plaques devoted to foreign visitors, Gandhi, Zola, Nathaniel Hawthorne, Freud, Grieg, C.L.R. James, Van Gogh, uh, John F. Kennedy, Bernardo O'Higgins. A very high proportion of blue plaques are in fact concerned with foreign visitors coming to London. And the ODNB, as I've talked about already, I think does try in that very brief summary to deal uh, with this set of issues of Brits making British history in Britain, Brits making British history abroad, and people from abroad going to Britain to make British history there. One final point, if I may. I suppose it's fair to say that nationalism, if we mean perhaps ethno-linguistic nationalism, or perhaps even if we mean civic nationalism, uh, is to some degree um, a late 18th and 19th century European invention. That's a gross oversimplification, but it's not wholly wrong. And it isn't, I think, coincidence, although I think the issues are more nuanced than is often stated, that the 19th century and the European 19th century is the place where these biographical dictionaries begin. Yet there is a curious paradox, I think, that national identities are paradoxically more fluid in 19th and 20th century Europe than they have been and are in nations that Europeans have created overseas. The map of Europe, the national map of Europe, was completely redrawn in 1918. It was completely redrawn again in 1945. And it was completely redrawn again in the aftermath of the Berlin Wall. The national units of identity have changed at least three times in uh, the history of Europe in the 20th century. Whereas, by comparison, Australia, uh, New Zealand, the United States, and perhaps with the exception of Quebec, Canada, uh, have not been, as it were, afflicted by this wish to keep changing the national boundaries. And somehow national identity has worked more when exported by Europe overseas than it actually worked in Europe itself where it was invented. What implications that has for dictionaries of national biography, I'm not sure, but it is, I think, an issue worth pondering. 
Finally, to a point that Melanie raised earlier, there is, of course, now the issue of Brexit. And once again, I think, the national boundaries of the British Isles are going to be redrawn. It seems uh, hugely likely that that is what is going to happen. There is going to be some rearrangement of the relations between England and Wales and Scotland, and there may well be some rearrangement between England and Wales and Northern Ireland. Uh, and so here, once again, in this tradition of European national boundaries and identities being actually very malleable and fluid, here is the United Kingdom, so-called, about to engage in another process of national fluidity, national malleability, uh, and some people even argue national uh, disintegration. And that will have huge implications, I think, going forward for what the Dictionary of National Biography, what the nation will be. Um, and Leslie Stephen may have done very well in not defining what the nation was back in the late 19th century. I think we may have more of a struggle uh, as we go forward uh, in the second decade of uh, the 21st century. My absolutely final point, as I contemplated these new lives that were put up in January 2016 and again in May 2016, is that what we are doing at the ODNB, and I think this is happening in other dictionaries as well, and it's certainly another issue that Melanie raised this morning. What we are much more conscious of, I think, than ever before, is that these ostensibly, but also not quite completely, national biographical enterprises are, above all, places where individuals who have lived perhaps local lives of significance, national lives of significance, and global lives of significance, all those people somehow end up uh, depending on the criteria of inclusion in these dictionaries of national biography. So that all of them, in a sense, are much more than what might seem the slightly limiting constraints of their titles. And that, I think, seems to me, um, as someone who feels very grateful and privileged to be the editor of the ODNB, to be part of the excitement and part of the challenges of the world in which all of these biographical dictionaries find themselves now. Thank you very much. We've got a couple of minutes uh, for questions before lunch. We won't take much longer than that, um, but that was a wonderful presentation, and, and I can already see some hands, Alistair. As I think emerged from this morning's session, and as will probably emerge from this session, you know, we are constantly, uh, as it were, fudging it. Um, 
I said, we're constantly fudging it. Um, and we can invent, as we properly do, elaborate uh, intellectually based criteria for inclusion and exclusion, but in the end, none of them are wholly satisfactory. Um, and we have to take account of the way interests change, we have to take account of the way that evidential availability changes. Um, but, of course, the lives that I talked about this morning, um, the, those who died in 2012 that went up in 2016, um, and those that we just put up uh, in May about South Asia, are only a relatively small part of the total number of lives that we've put up. So that if your question is, uh, are we, as it were, dispersing Britain uh, or the British national biography, I don't think we are, but we are certainly trying, while not doing that, to take note of uh, these new areas of interest and new areas where it's possible now to write entries which in earlier times it probably wasn't. So I think the best answer to that is we are fudging it um, in the way I've just described, but I think that inevitably uh, all of these issues, the ones that I summarized that I thought had been raised in Melanie's session and in mine, to some degree they are fudged. Um, but that's, you know, we don't need to remind ourselves that history is messy, um, and in some ways biography is even messier, um, and fudging is actually part of the fun. Further questions? I can, I can see some hands that look like they're about to come up. Um, I, I had one question, if I may, and that relates to, uh, perhaps it's an obvious question, but at the ADB we uh, have about a 20-year gap, or maybe not quite so much, but it's, you know, it's over a decade on, on the way to 20 years between, um, it, which gives a, a sort of point of objectivity in looking back, at least that's, the, that's um, often, often what is hoped. With only four years, um, how objective can one be, and does this, re does this result in mistakes? Well, of course, as we all know, and as the example of Sir William Slim uh, suggests, uh, the notion that you somehow reach a point of objectivity 20 years after is, of course, a delusion. Um, sorry not to be more helpful on that, but uh, that seems to me to be the case. Reputations go up and down across a long span of time, um, and there's no obvious point at which you're more likely to have a settled objective view than any other. Um, it's certainly true when the National Portrait Gallery was first set up that there was a rule that it was 10 or 20 years before you could accept a portrait because by then it was hoped that some sort of settled verdict would have been reached. The problem with that became by Roy Strong's time as director that lots of people never had their portraits painted at all unless the NPG was willing to commission them and you could only commission them when they were still alive. So the, the, the trend was changed, and so we now commission the portraits of people who are alive, and sometimes we get it right, and sometimes we get it wrong. Um, and that's, I think, a risk that one always runs in trying to say at what point are we absolutely sure this person's reputation is secure and settled. There is never any point when that point is reached. Um, the way in which we do the people, as it were, who are dying on us now, you know, our best form of certain business going forward, the way in which we deal with that is indeed it's four years. Um, and that's slightly arbitrary because the cut-off point for the Colin Matthew Brown Harrison Enterprise was 2000, and that came out in 2004, so that was the four-year gap which carries on going forward. 
Well, four years isn't a good base on which to reach a settled verdict about anybody either, but it is worth saying that we were hugely lucky in that it was within that four-year span that Jimmy Savile's reputation collapsed. Um, and we were hugely uh, fortunate that by the time his life was put up, Lawrence Goldman, my predecessor, wrote that life, uh, all the evidence had come out. So whereas if we had done that right away, it would have been this wonderful man, this cultural icon, this great philanthropist who cares very deeply about improving the lives of ordinary people, especially young children, that's how it would have read because that was how he was presented when he died. Of course, but four years later, uh, it was a wholly different picture. So there are always, I think, risks it's always a delusion to think that there's ever a settled verdict. And it's no less of a delusion to suppose that there is any particular time at which there is a settled verdict. So once again, we're into fudge. One, one question here, which will be our last. Thank you. And what do you think I should be worried about? Uh, I mean, do you have any problem with that? What, with putting uh, them in? Some of these people will be mentioned in your national Well, uh, no, I have no problem with that at all. We are back to an issue which was raised in the first session about these global lives. Um, and it's probably something we'll come on to in later sessions as we move through this conference. That's to say there are people who live part of their lives in one country, part of their lives in another country, and part of their lives in yet a third country. I mean, a classic example of that would be the physicist Ernest Rutherford, uh, who, of course, began in New Zealand, then worked in Canada, uh, and then went to Manchester, and then went to Cambridge. And there are those who regard Manchester and Cambridge as not just different cities, but different countries. Um, <laughs> And so, as it were, um, I don't know whether he figures in the Canadian Dictionary of National Biography or the New Zealand Dictionary. I haven't looked, but he probably should. But the whole issue, which Melanie, in fact, um, raised this morning, of people who, have, who live important lives in more than one country uh, is, I think, hugely important. I mean, a contemporary happily still with us uh, to whom this will apply is James Wolfenson. James, of course, born in this country, uh, a very important figure uh, in this country, made his first fortune in this country, then went to Britain and was a very important figure there, now lives in the United States, where um, he ran the World Bank, chaired the Institute for Advanced Study, and chaired Carnegie Hall. I mean, that's a life, an absolutely iconic uh, and quintessential global life, where he might figure, maybe should figure, in the biographical dictionaries of those three countries. And how we sort of apportion those lives between different national biographies and how we think about them as perhaps transnational lives which need a different form of exposition than the specifics of their particular period of residence in one of those countries is, I think, a big issue which maybe we'll come to later. I think we'll draw this session to a close now. It's been a fantastic, illuminating uh, session. And now we have lunch, but please join me in thanking all of our speakers today.